With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell Show. It is Monday. It is the 1st of August, if you can believe that. Year of our Lord 2022 just will not keep rolling right along. We got to try to keep up with it as best we can. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us on Herd Tell, wherever you are across the street around the world. We appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have your time. And what we try to do here, if you're new to the program, we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get the things that actually matter, talk about them in a grown folk adult way, no yelling, no caterwauling, because the most important thing we need to do with news information is to discern the times we live in. It helps us make better decisions, helps us be better people, helps us treat each other a whole lot better as well. Got a lot to cover on the program today. We have an amazing story. Uh, Eastern Kentucky is getting hammered with flooding. Eastern Kentucky, of course, big part of Appalachia, very rural, very poor. They are getting just decimated by these floods. When the water comes up in those hollers, folks, if you've never been in that kind of terrain, there is nowhere to go, uh, and the water comes fast. It's been raining since Wednesday. It's going to continue to rain for at least another day. Pray for those folks. We're going to have some donation links in the show notes also, but an amazing story of an anonymous man who saved three elderly people's lives. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Also, talk about turning down the noise and news cycle. Uh, Choco Tacos, uh, an ice cream truck favorite, confectionery section of the grocery store. If you didn't have food trucks because you grew up rurally like I did, I never really cared for them, but people got all up in arms because they're getting discontinued. And of course, somebody manipulated an image and made it into a woke mob, took out the Choco Tacos. Only problem was it never actually happened. We'll detail that story, get to the bottom of the Choco Tacos here in a little bit. It's good to have that fun story, though, because we've got a very serious topic for our guest. Our most seen guest on Herdtail because he's brilliant, but he also talks in a plain spoken way that even I can understand, Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, usually we have him on Talking Science. Today it's going to be something a lot more personal and a lot more ugly. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism, of course. Um, Michael Siegel is of the Jewish heritage and faith. He can talk about when he was a kid personally some things that happened to him that were very ugly, directed at his Jewish faith. We're also going to talk about recent headlines. We have people running for office and one person who's one of the most powerful people in the world doing questionable things when it comes to anti-Semitism, what it means, what has and hasn't changed over the last few years. A heavy topic, but an important topic. Anti-Semitism with our friend Michael Siegel is our guest today. First, we're going to start with office work. Yes, office work. We've talked about work a lot on this program, especially since uh, it became the daily version of Herd Tell that you're listening to now. COVID changed work for folks. Let's just baseline this real quick. When certain people can go remote and other certain people are told they're invaluable and essential and they have to go to work whether they like it or not forward facing, that's caused a lot of people to reexamine how work in America got done. Let's go to the Wall Street Journal opinion page. Peggy Noonan is writing about the demise of the offices in America. Let me start with this. I highly respect uh, Peggy Noonan. She is a brilliant woman for many, many years. She wrote two, not one, two of the all-time great presidential speeches. You should listen to both of those sometimes, uh, the Point to Hawk speech and the Challenger speech. She's a somebody I respect, although I don't always agree with her. I disagree with her here, although I understand where she's coming from, but I don't think it's because she's necessarily wrong. 
I think she's just of a different generation and maybe doesn't understand what has happened the last few years. And I say that very respectfully. Look, we just everybody has their own experiences in life. She opens this piece talking about how young folks will see this differently. So it's not that she's not unaware of it. We're going to pick it up about halfway through. Uh, Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal. Arguments against working from home are largely intangible, and I focus on these. They are less personal, more national and societal. I don't want to see office life in America end. The decline in office life is going to have an impact on the general atmosphere of the country. There is something demoralizing about all the empty offices, something post-greatness about them, all the almost empty buildings and all the downtowns, and it feels like too much of a metaphor of decline. My mind goes to first to the young. It's part I want to focus on here, and this is where I'm going to respectfully disagree with Peggy Noonan here in just a minute, but let's hear her out first. People starting out need offices to learn a profession, to make friends, to meet colleagues, find romantic partners and mates. The Me Too movement did a lot of damage to mentoring. Senior employees no longer wanted to take that chance. I dispute that some other time. If you're doing the right things, you don't worry about such things, but we'll talk about that some other time. But the end of office life would pretty much do away with it. There will be less knowledge of the workplace, of what's going on, of the sense that you're part of a burbling ecosystem. There will be fewer deep friendships, antagonisms, real and daily relationships. Work will seem without depth, flat as a Zoom screen, less human. Without offices, you'll lose a place to escape from your home life. My guess is the end of the office will lead to a decline in professionalism across the board. This is Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal. You will learn things in the halls from the old veterans. You understand she's watching your progress and what to come through with your excellence. Without her down the hall, who will be there for you to be excellent for? There will likely in each company and organization be a decline in a sense of mission. A diluting of the company's spirit looks to me inevitable. Spirit, mission, they come from people that are established and imparted through being together, sharing a particular space, talking to each other, encouraging and correcting. At some point in the 20th century, America invented big scale office life. We were the envy of the world for it. Without it, we will be less bubbly creativity, less of a chance of meeting in the hall and offhanded comments that result in brain sparking off brains. Companies may seem more communal in a way. Zoom screens aren't explicitly hierarchical, but there will be less clarity and less leadership. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, who said he wants people back in the office and experienced pushback for it, just stated in his annual report that people cannot leave from behind a desk or in front of a screen. It is possible work at home is changing the nature of professional ambition. She goes on to detail some other things, but here's the nut of what she gets at. Here are my two greatest concerns as a Peggy Noonan. The first is that my lifetime, the office is where America happened every day. So so many of our most popular TV programs were about the office. The primary location of daily integration in America has been during the past century, the office. Something else I'll dispute, but we'll get to in just a second. And this being a political report column, my second worry, the end of the office will contribute to polarization. Receding from office life will become another way of self-segregating. People will expose to less and in their downtown will burrow down into their sites, their groups, their online angers, their group-driven information and facts. I suppose what I fear is a more disembodied nation. That's Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal. Let me take her two points and her overall point very quickly here. I disagree with her because there's a generational problem here. And I don't think she's necessarily wrong. I think she just doesn't see the world as other people see it. I can see this in my own children who are aged 16 through 24 years old. The oldest, of course, out in the working world now, one in college, one starting college Monday, as a matter of fact, the other two in high school. They went through something that changed how they per will perceive work forever. And this happened with millions of other kids. When I opened with the COVID stuff, 
they saw certain workers being considered con, uh, essential and they saw other workers considered not essential. They saw who could work at home and who couldn't. And then we shut down our schools and made the kids sit at home and let them know that they're all cogs in a giant wheel. They will never, ever romanticize office work and schools and higher education the way former generations did because their learned experience is that it was taking away from them and they were just part of a bigger machine that didn't really care whether they got it or not. I know COVID was a disaster. I know it was important to do it. I know there was medical reasons. It doesn't matter. This is still what happened to these kids. They know without a shadow of a doubt that they are just part of a larger system. So the romanticization of these things is gone forever. You're not getting that back. Also, they're already very online. Most of their societal connections are already online. Their friends are all online. They're on multiple platforms all the time, constantly in communication with their uh, friends and peers. They're going to expect their work life to mirror that. And if it don't, they're going to wonder what's wrong with it. It's not that they don't have interpersonal relationships. It's that they have very different ones. And that's going to carry over to their work careers, whatever careers they go into. For her second point, though, we are already a disembodied nation. People have in their hands, every single one of us that have one of these, a cell phone, you have the entire depth and breadth of human history in the palm of your hand. We use this mostly to send cat pictures and complain about things, but you can look up anything you want. We're already seeing it societal and the workplace has nothing to do with it because let's be honest, workplaces have had biases and preferences and things like certain people not being allowed to work there. We can hash all that out again, but let's all be adults here. The workplace has been all kinds of segmented in society for years and years and years, and that's been a problem. But people are already using technology to silo themselves as it is. They dovetail their news to only hear what they want to hear. They only talk to their in-group, and their in-groups have gotten wider nationally and globally because they can find way more people to think just like they are. They're already doing that. The workplace isn't going to fix, help, or hurt that process. So I think this piece, while well-meaning, is missing the mark. There's a generational change and there's a technology change. The workplace is no longer the center of people's lives. Their technology is, and their relationships are all in there. And the workplaces need to adapt to the fact that they are going to be a secondary communal space to online in the foreseeable future. And I'm not so sure that's not a healthy thing because, again, workplaces have not been a pleasant experience for a vast majority of people. One last thing on this topic. As somebody who was a manager in a major company, a Fortune 500 company, let me tell you something from experience. This thing that you can't lead from behind a screen or behind a desk, there's truth to that, but the underlying premise is wrong. You have to lead the people you have where they are at. We are too busy trying to make corporate leaders, government leaders, military leaders, leaders in our families, for that matter, in our interpersonal relationships, because they want them to lead some kind of mythical thing that doesn't exist. The perfect person. People are complicated. Leaders adapt. You can figure out how to lead from a Zoom call. You can figure out how to lead from behind a desk if you have to. And that's hard for me because I'm one of those lead from the front, lead by example, work alongside me, not behind me kind of people. But you adapt because that's what leaders do. Corporate culture needs to start with the corporate leadership. Just adapt to this. It's happening whether you like it or not. You better get in line with the technology and you better get in line with the changing uh, perceptions of the generation that is coming online into the workplace or they're going to find somewhere else to work and they're going to find places that do accommodate you. Then where you really are going to start having some empty offices because this oncoming generation, they know they've got some choices and they're going to find people that cater to them.
More Hertel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, welcome back to Herd Tell. He is the most visited guest in the history of the herd tell program because he's just that much fun he's just that smart he's even handsome with his new haircut and his wonderful background to the burt reynolds nebula our good friend dr michael siegel how are you sir i'm good how are you my friend unfortunately we got a little bit of a dark topic for you today but because we respect you so much we think this is the perfect person to talk about it I feel about this topic kind of like I do cancer. It's like, okay, is there really more cancers or are we just learning more about it and we see more about it and it's louder? What do you think it is when we deal with something like anti-Semitism? Because we know human nature doesn't change. We know, you know, prejudices and bigotries and things like that don't really change. Is there more of it or is it just louder, faster, stronger, and the really bad people can congregate more easily nowadays? I, I think it's the latter. I think there's uh, less anti-Semitism than there used to be. Um, certainly from when I grew up and, uh, in the 1980s, uh, when I was a, a kid, I didn't, wasn't exposed to a lot of anti-Semitism, but there was an incident where, uh, a cross was burned on the lawn of our synagogue while it was under construction. And, uh, I did know friends who experienced, uh, violence actually, uh, because of anti-Semitism. So I think that sort of thing is reduced. But I think in the age of the internet, any kind of extreme voice tends to get amplified. You know, that, you know, you had, for example, you know, we, there was this debate in 2016 over the deplorables around Donald Trump. And I think that was a very tiny fraction of the support. But with the internet, that tiny fraction can amplify up so much so that they become very, very loud. And especially, I think, you know, the media has a tendency to give a lot of attention to these people, not unjustifiably so when you hear someone espousing violence and discriminatory views you, you definitely want don't want to ignore that and let it fester but uh, i do think that things have gotten better generally in that i'm just you know and especially comparing to when my father grew up and and things like that when they had you know major schools had quotas on how many jews they could admit where you know, people, he would, you know, he knew doctors who were fired because they were Jewish, you know, on a kind of slim pretext. Um, he knew people in the military who were not promoted because they were Jewish. I mean, it wasn't said openly, but it was pretty obvious what was happening. That sort of thing has disappeared or at least significantly reduced. But I do think with your, when you're talking about extreme groups that are way out there, that especially with the internet, that has to have a tendency to amplify their voices and give them a very loud reach. Let's back up for a second, because um, I know we hear things in history, but we don't put personal faces to it. You're talking about growing up in the 80s. I've talked about, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, even though you're a little bit older than I am, you know, we talk about that World War II generation. Like if you saw an older man, you just assumed he was a World War II vet, right? You grew up in a Jewish community. 
you still had that Holocaust generation. There was lots of those folks. They're almost all gone now. Yeah. Is there a generational difference now besides the technology and that stuff? That's just a huge generational difference because that working knowledge, unfortunately, that word of mouth tradition, that's almost gone now. Has that changed it too? And has that changed how the community views some of this stuff, do you think? Um, that's a very good question. And I don't know that I have a very good answer to it. During the 1970s and 1980s were kind of an era where the awareness of the Holocaust in particular came into flower. But before then, a lot of Holocaust survivors would talk about how they were kind of discouraged about talking about it. I talked to a Holocaust survivor who came to this country and tried to tell his family what had happened and they didn't want to hear about it because it was it was so horrible. And there was a time when people wouldn't talk about these things. And then that started changing. And I think we Thankfully, you know, a lot of these people are dying off, but we also have the Shoah Project, which has preserved a lot of their firsthand testimony. We have a lot of great documentaries. The Shoah documentary is very long and very arduous, but I think it's very good for interviewing people on all sides, not just the people who were the victims, but the perpetrators and the bystanders and so forth. I think in the digital age, that has allowed a lot of these voices to be kept alive long after the, the survivors are going. So that if you if you seek it out, if you want it, you can you can find that information. I mean, there has been a tendency to decide to, to, to sort of try to bury these things in the past. Uh, just to give another personal example, uh, in the 1910s, a businessman named Leo Frank was accused of murdering one of his uh, workers, a, a young teenage girl, and uh, was almost was very likely innocent. And was lynched, but was convicted and eventually lynched by a mob. My grandparents grew up during that. They were teenagers. They would not talk about it until the 1980s. Then people started talking about it, and there were movies about it. And suddenly they were, you know, they were reluctant, but people would talk about it then. So these these the willingness to talk about these things kind of waxes and wanes. But I think uh, as you know, we are losing that firsthand testimony, but with the digital age and especially the show project that has allowed a lot of that firsthand testimony to be preserved. You said something really important, Dr. Michael Siegel, joining us, our very good friend here on Herntel. I think you said something really important about that project that, yes, they interviewed the survivors and they interviewed some of the perpetrators. One of the really important groups that we don't talk about, and it's not just anti-Semitism, it's race-based hatred, religious-based hatred, class, whatever kind of hatred you want to talk about, the bystanders, because that's the group that does the enabling. That's the group that usually controls the power structure that the hatred operates out of. Anytime you have hatred and abuse that comes from hatred, there's that big swath of bystanders. And I think, this is my opinion, you tell me what you think. I think what we're seeing digitally is, yeah, I think it's better in the real world, but digitally, I think you're getting some real hard dividing lines between that extreme element. But I think the people that are bystanderish or bystanderish tendencies are really exposing themselves online in this day and age. Is that uh, fair to say it that way? I, I think so. Um, you you can look at, at history and see that the kind of horrors we talk about with the Holocaust, or even just separating from the Holocaust to, to other to other incidents in the, in history with other groups that have been oppressed or in this subject of mass murders, the vast majority of people just sort of want to go along, you know, they, they're, I mean, they might be against it, but they don't want to do anything about it. 
and they just want to get through their day and, and so forth. And that what that does is enables those tiny minorities of really bad people that gives them the freedom to act. And so I think, you know, I mean, not just when we're talking about anti-Semitism, we're talking about any sort of ism, there is a responsibility of people to, to speak out and say, no, this is not acceptable and, and to oppose when they can. Because the vast, you know, one of the things I've, I've said on my uh, YouTube channel is I, the vast majority of people are good, but we are very easily tempted when there's, you know, something at stake like money or honor to do the bad thing. We're very good at rationalizing, not acting when we see something, you know, that's wrong. And uh, that's a that's a difficult tendency to overcome, but one that we sort of have to. And especially in this digital age when extreme voices, even if you're talking about only 1%, can be amplified up so dramatically and can have such dramatic power, um, way out of proportion to their numbers, I think uh, there is a responsibility of people to uh, to not stand by. Dr. Michael Siegel join us. I, I find it interesting. Like I've seen it in my own children. I have teenagers through young adults now as children, especially the two younger teens. They just have zero tolerance for, for stuff like this because they've been, you know, you know, they're very, very online. They've been, you know, they've moved around the world a little bit. I hope that I've tried to teach them a little bit along with their mother, but mostly it's just them. They have such a basis of knowledge because of the technology. They're exposed to a wide swath of culture that you know previous generations weren't they have zero tolerance for this stuff like as soon as they hear some they're like oh no that's racist or that's anti-semitic or that's quiet like they just zero tolerance for it inside of the community though because you're raising your own children now what is it like now in the digital age because it is different it's more maybe it's more online than just somebody making a comment on the street like it used to be then how does that change in the online communities inside of the Jewish community, especially like you're raising your own kids? Because now you've got this whole digital sphere that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Yeah, and it'd be difficult for me to speak to for the entire Jewish community because everyone's experience is different. I would say that talking to people, it seems like they're more there's less fear of the kind of institutional discrimination and so forth that used to be faced and used to be more common where you had, you know, clubs that would exclude Jews and colleges that would have quotas on Jews and that sort of thing. And more fear of, you know, what happened in Pittsburgh where a lone guy, you know, with, you know, hatred amplified by internet voices went in into the synagogue and massacred a bunch of people. There's more fear, I would say, of that sort the power of a single person to do horror than there is of institutional or at this point but again that might not be the perception of other people so i'd be hesitant to speak for everyone but like you i've seen with my daughter the same thing she's you know with the teen she also has very little tolerance for that sort of thing and uh and her school has sort of that tolerance there was a, a thing at one of the schools where some kid wore like a, a had like a nazi symbol and they, this was this caused a lot of controversy because the vast majority of students were like, "This is not 
cool. This is not funny. This is not ironic. You need to get rid of that. Michael Siegel joining us again. That's Dr. Michael Siegel to you folks. If we're talking science, when we're just talking on ordinary times, we just call him Hal because of his uh, Twitter handle that you see there. You mentioned Pittsburgh, unfortunately. We know what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue. We've had other instances of it. Thankfully, the recent headlines have been thwarted attacks, but there are people out there that keep targeting Jews and Jewish communities and synagogues. I lived in Germany twice. Uh, synagogues on holy, high holy days and on, you know, for normal weekly service, they have armed polizei out front. They just do. That's just reality over there. The house, I'm a Baptist. The house of worship I worship at, in fact, the last two churches I've attended, they both have armed security during service or I won't attend there. That's something I'm just cognizant of. Do y'all think about it? You mentioned it. How readily is it in people's mind when they're just going to a normal service or Shabbat or whatever the case may be, a high holiday, maybe especially? Is it on people's minds? Because it's got to be part of the thought process after things like Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly with the with the rash of mass shootings we've had uh, recently. Um, that sort of thing has been on people's minds. I mean, and just, you know, when we had the mass shooting in Texas, there were teachers outside the schools, there were police outside the schools. Right after the uh, Tree of Life shooting, there were, you know, we're, that was in our state. So there were armed guards outside of our synagogue. It's not something that I would say is distracting. It's just something that you, you sort of have to do, um, that, you, that unfortunately you have to think about. Um, but again, you know, that, that would plug into what I was saying earlier about how the fear is less of institutional stuff and more of a rogue agent. And it's it's not surprising that this has popped up with some of these crazy conspiracy theories going on because you know eventually they will circle around to anti-Semitism. It's very easy. We're a very small minority. You're not talking about maybe two percent of the American population, and there are very easy tropes to fall back on with you know oh Jews control the banks and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's a very uh, lazy hatred to fall back on for a lot of these extremists. So it's it's not surprising, but um, it's just something that you, that you have to you know sort of deal with. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Michael Siegel joining us. All right, that's the history and the cultural side of it. Unfortunately, we've got some real world examples and it's not just internet people. Uh, it's people seeking office and two people that are actually heads of states of powerful countries. We're gonna go through that. Michael Siegel joining us once again on Herdtel. We'll continue right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Dr. Michael Siegel, one of our favorites because he's on this program more than any other guest. Long may it continue, my friend, because you give good content, sir, among all your other great accomplishments in life. Joining us, he's a scientist, but we're talking a little more culture stuff today. Okay, we're talking anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, I wish this was all just a philosophical exercise, but it is not because we have real world people, one seeking power, two people that are heads of states that have issues in this regard. Let's start right in your backyard, Pennsylvania. Uh, Doug Mastriano is running for um, office there. He wants to be governor. He has gotten himself in some trouble with a financial backer from the guy that started up Gab. And I don't wanna rehash this because we already talked about Gab before. Uh, Gab is a cesspool. It was 
purposely built to circumnavigate certain rules. So, and I'm not saying everybody on there does this, but this is what it was designed to do. Uh, it's so you can say stuff there that you can't say in regular polite society, including a lot of racist and anti-Semitic things. Uh, there's financial ties there. The founder, Andrew Torba, came out and made comments. Um, I don't want to take this out of context, so I will quote him. He basically came out and said, well, we don't give interviews to any reporters that aren't Christians, uh, meaning Jewish reporters. Uh, he said he was getting consulting fees yesterday. Mastriano came out and denied all this, said, no, he doesn't have anything to do with my campaign. I don't tolerate anti-Semitism. How does, that's a lot to unpack, but this is not a new story. If you're taking money from somebody and they have bad ties, you can parse that part out in. How does this land for you? Because this is this is an election you have to vote in and that will affect you because you live in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I can't look into Bastiano's heart, so I don't know if he, if he is anti-Semitic or not. I'd never heard anything particularly about that before this uh, scandal erupted. So I, I have a tendency to give people a benefit of doubt, which maybe I couldn't. But uh, I, I hesitate to accuse someone of anything. I do think that you are playing with fire when you associate with people like that. I mean, and, and it, again, doesn't have to just be anti-Semitism. It could be any sort of ism where people are saying racist things or homophobic things or anything like that. When you associate with people like that, when you take their coin, that that affects you, that affects how people perceive you. And so I think the, that, um, you know, I'm glad he's, you know, said, come out and said he's against anti-Semitism. I, you know, think that refusing this person's money would be uh, a little more uh, demonstrative. We have seen politicians in the past return money from groups that uh, that didn't back that back them up that they thought were too extreme and and they didn't want to be associated with it. There's tons of money in politics, so there's not a, a shortage of places to get money from, especially when you're running for governor of a major state. Uh, I remember this came up a few years ago with the. Uh, Ron Paul campaign that there were, you know, Stormfront people and other neo Nazis sort of backing him up, and uh, the response was, "Well, should we just give them? You know, we're taking away their money. Maybe we that's good to not have have the money." And I was like, "No, you you don't want to take these people's money." Um, the the thing about anti Semites and bigots in general with politics is they I I have described them as the barnacles of the political world. They have a tendency to glom onto anyone that they see as an outsider. You know, 10 years ago, it was Ron Paul. Even though Ron Paul wanted to, like, end the war on drugs and let lots of people out of prison, which you think the Nazis would be against, because he was perceived as an outsider and because they're always outsiders, they just glommed onto him. And then they sort of glommed onto Trump because he was an outsider. And now I think they're glomming onto, they might be glomming onto this campaign. I mean, it's just one guy, so we have to see what else is going on. But it's i am hesitant to read into a politician's views and philosophy and character the views of the more extremist supporters but i do think uh, a basic decency would require you to dissociate yourself from people like that is it the money or the rhetoric that bothers you more and i know in politics they kind of go together but would would some words and action be more meaningful here, or is giving the money back more meaningful? Do you think? I uh, I think that they're both important. I think you you both have to say that this is unacceptable, and you have to say I don't want to be associated with that person. All right, somebody who does have a tremendous amount of power, uh, Mastriano just once said he doesn't have it yet. 
uh, over in Russia, some really ugly stuff is going on. This is a little detailed. We'll link to it in the show notes. Folks can go in and read it for themselves. But basically, long story short, Vladimir Putin is threatening to shut down the Jewish agency in Russia. That is the agency that returned. Israel has a right of return. Anybody that has Jewish blood back to their grandparents has a right to citizenship in Israel. Something like a million people from Russia has gone to Israel. It's a huge part of Israel's original immigrant population. He's threatening to shut all this down now all of a sudden. There's geopolitical involved in this because Israel's been kind of a go-between during this Ukraine war crisis and a lot of other things. Russia's got a long history of this kind of stuff, and Vladimir Putin specifically has a bad history with certain groups. This is anti-Semitism on a global geopolitical level, yeah? Uh, yeah, but I also think it it's more related to Putin's sort of desperation and dementia with what's going on in the world that you know he's got the west united against him the war in the ukraine has not gone as well as he wanted to and especially at the hands of a jewish president i think that um this is sort of him lashing out uh in frustration uh more more than anything else i i think the one thing the only guide star that we are certain of with vladimir putin's philosophy is he favors vladimir putin and he favors building Russia up to be more like the imperial Russia of the past, or that he imagines imperial Russia to have been in the past than it is now. And I think any and every group is just someone he's willing to step on to get there. And so Jews are an easy target. Uh, and it also tries to keep Israel in line and other countries in line. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily indicative of a coming storm or anything like that but you never know i i hesitate to look into someone with his disease in a mind as vladimir putin yeah i don't blame you for that even if it's not directly relate at the jewish community though when he does something like with ukraine where he starts in with the anti-nazi stuff which has all those overtones that go with it that's still got to just land wrong though with the jewish community right it, I, I mean yeah. i'm just normal Will recoil at that. I imagine it's got to be specifically really perks up the ears of the Jewish community, like anti-Nazi. What are you doing? Yeah, and that's again a lot more connected to internal politics of Russia that you have with Russia. This memory of the Great Patriotic War and the Nazis invading Russia and killing millions and millions of Russian people and so forth. So it's 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 connected with that as much as it is anti-Semitism. That this long history and their you know, pride in winning the, the, you know, their part of World War II against uh, the, the Nazis. But yeah, and especially given what's going on in Ukraine is basically an ethnic cleansing of Ukrainians, uh, given the history of trying to ethnically cleanse uh, Ukrainians, Jewish or not, you know, I mean, Ukraine has always had a large Jewish population, but uh, I, you know, last year I read um, Ann Applebaum's fantastic book, Red Famine, about the Holodomor, and you know, I, I think that it's less connected with anti-Semitism that is is on Putin trying to weaponize the rhetoric of the past, trying to otherize the Ukrainians, trying to justify. And we have over a million Ukrainians deported to Russia. We have children being torn away from families. This is absolutely an ethnic cleansing, and you don't have to necessarily be killing Jews to be in that in that Nazi category. I think if you're ethnically cleansing a country, you're Nazi adjacent if you're not actually there. 
separating um, countries and politics from stuff like this is hard. It doesn't get any harder than when it comes to the nation of Israel. Where do we, how do we parse that one out? Because the real bad faith actors that want to be anti-Semitic, who cannot stand the Jewish people for whatever twisted reason they have, they love to work in that gray space of like, oh, we're not anti-Jewish, we're anti-Zionist. And then they start parsing that out. I know it's tough to delve into that, but that's just the reality we are in. What do you do with that? Because like you're saying with Russia, you know, Israel is also a country. Um, not everybody in Israel is a Jew. They have other minority groups as well. How do we handle that one without delving into those dark regions where those people start grabbing people and twisting their minds and twisting their words with it? Uh, it's it's tricky that you you have an Israeli government that has done things that a lot of people disagree with, uh, with, uh, with the West Bank and so forth. Um, that I think even people who support the existence of Israel and the nation of Israel have problems with. And so you have a large middle ground and so forth. But it is, you know, what I like to say is that, you know, if you're anti the state of Israel, you're talking about dismantling the state that is the homeland to basically half of the Jews in the world and dismantling a state that has protected those people for, you know, seven, almost going on 75 years now. And so it's one thing to oppose Israel's expansion of the West Bank. It's one thing to oppose how they're acting in, say, the Gaza Strip or something like that. But to you know, be against the existence or to have favor a one-state solution, I think is, is uh, I don't know if it's necessarily anti-Semitic, but you're, you're talking about uh, a set of policies and a set of positions that is, would, many people would consider, be considered dangerous to the continued uh, survival of that state. I guess it's kind of like with Ukraine where I'm like, yes, Ukraine has issues and they're not a perfect country either, but they don't deserve to be wiped off the map either. I yeah. think we can say the same with Israel. Like I can, I can support Israel as a concept and as a friend and as an ally, I can condemn them when they do individual things wrong. You still don't get to wipe them out because of whatever problems they have as a country. That's, that's way too far. And then we need to hash out the gray area. Is that the yeah, fair the problem, way to look at that? Yeah. The problem with, if you, if you're talking about, you know, if you disagree with what they're doing in the West Bank or Gaza, the problem is not the existence of the state of Israel. The problem is the people leading it right now, the people who are leading, although they've just had a change in leadership. So that may, that may change things. Um, but yeah, I think that's a perfect way of putting it, that we can be allies with country. We can support a country. We can support the existence of country while still disagreeing uh, with uh, even very vociferously with some of the policies they're engaged in. Yeah. Tough topic today. Really hard questions. You didn't duck any of them, even when I didn't ask them really particularly well. That's why, my friend, you still we need to get you one of the like wrestling belts, like most <laughs> most seen guests on the show. And you can have it over your shoulder every time you come out until somebody takes it from you. Uh, we'll look into doing that. It might have to be a screen graphic because we have no budget. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, you do wonderful work, sir. Um, on the road and appearing anywhere. Greatly appreciate that. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on writing-wise until they see you again. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, away this week, but uh, ordinarily I appear at least once a week on Ordinary Times, ordinary-times.com. Uh, you can see how underscore RTFLC is where you can follow me on Twitter. You can also just go to YouTube and Google Mike's and check out Mike Siegel Astronomy, where I talk about uh, astronomy and movies, including uh, addressing your favorite movie of all time. Uh, so yeah, it's, I'm not difficult to find. 
uh michael siegel appreciate you my friend yeah the the youtube channel is that was an armageddon dig it's not my favorite movie of all time but it's my favorite movie to throw at astronomers at all time because it just drives them crazy because of all the inaccuracies but go watch the youtube channel it's fantastic stuff you're a fantastic guest you're an even better friend thank you for the time today my friend oh always glad to be on thank you for having me yes sir talk again soon back to her tell okay here's one of them viral stories that certainly turned out to not be what they thought it was uh choco tacos or coco tacos depending on how you say it i always said choco uh choco taco um these are of course the klondike things from the confectionery sugary ice cream section of the freezers it is exactly what it sounds like it's supposed to be a chocolate taco it's basically a re-imaged ice cream sandwich I actually don't like them. I think they're kind of chalky for my taste, especially when it comes to ice cream. But a lot of people like them. Anywho, what had happened here was there was a picture that looked like a People magazine headline. And folks grabbed it and ran with it online. Problem was it turned out to be false as the AP fact checkers, which normally get into silly stuff. But in this case, they actually did something good. The claim headline on People's Magazine's website reported that Klondike's Choco Tacos were discontinued in response to the, quote, woke mob and recent allegations of, quote, cultural appropriation just cut your heart out with a spoon this stuff gets so stupid uh this is false a representative from people's magazine confirmed this headline was fabricated klondike said it was discontinuing its choco tacos after a spike in demand over the past two years led to tough decisions to ensure the availability of our full portfolio nationwide you can tell a lawyer wrote that one it did not cite cultural pulperations here's the facts a manipulated image, again, I'm reading from the AP here, designed to look like a People magazine headline was shared across as real all over social media this week as the public reacted to the news that the beloved ice cream treat had been discontinued. The fake headline, which amassed thousands of shares on Twitter, read Klondike's Choco Taco canceled by the woke mob after almost 40 years. A fabricated subheading read a representative for the brand confirmed to people that due to the recent allegations of cultural appropriation, the Choco Taco is no more. <laughs> sorry you did uh, okay though some twitter users shared the image as a joke others actually believe this thing was real replying in comments that klondike had gone too far and that the brand decisions like this were the reason for voting republican god help us however the image was fake and did not match any story that ever appealed or appeared on people's website uh, people magazine did report on the news but with a different headline klondike's choco taco discontinued after almost 40 years the reporter who wrote the story was also a different person than the fake image showed the associated press reported tuesday that klondike had cited an unprecedented spike in demand as the reason for discontinuing the product not to cancel it but to preserve it for in the future they said we had to make a very tough decision to ensure the availability of our portfolio nationwide there's that lawyer speaking in notice how those pop up this is an unnecessary but unfortunate part of this process that we sometimes discontinue products. Klondike later said it's working hard to find a way to bring Choco Tacos back to the ice cream trucks in the coming years. Uh, so there that is. Turning down the noise of the news, even when it includes 
Choco Tacos and the fake woke headlines. Your mileage may vary. Us rural kids, we didn't have ice cream trucks. We had, you know, had to go to the store like everybody else. But if you're one of them ice cream truck kids, good news, it may be back in good order in due time. Always be careful. You never lose points for not smashing the send button. Check it out and see if it's valid first, folks. We can do better. More Hertel right after this. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. back to her tell we try to end on a little bit of a happier note or a good note uh this is a little bit of both although it's melancholy as well kentucky has been getting absolutely hammered with excessive rain and massive flooding in rural kentucky in eastern kentucky this is of course part of appalachia it's very rural very mountainous when water comes up in those hollers there is nowhere to go this is also of course an area of great poverty it's a mess it's bad it's ugly We've been covering it. In fact, we're going to link in the show notes a couple of local charities that you can give to. We've already talked about on the program before, but this is a good story. Um, Amid disastrous flooding, this is from CNN, in eastern Kentucky, one anonymous man's good deed helped rescue a grandmother and her family trapped inside a water-filled home. Randy Polly was driving to get gas on Thursday morning when he encountered floodwaters that left him stranded on a patch of dry land in Whitesburg, Kentucky. A few hours later, he watched from a distance as a man saved an elderly woman and others who were trapped in the house as the waters kept rising. Polly told CNN he could tell and hear people yelling across the flooded rope, get me help, get me help. He called 911, but emergency services were overwhelmed and unresponsive. Around 9 a.m., he witnessed someone he describes as a hero swim over to the house and start banging on the doors and window. A series of dramatic videos taken by Polly and shared with CNN show the rescue. Polly said it took about 30 minutes start to finish. As the man entered the house through the windows and helped each of the three family members, leave safely. Missy Crovetti, who is based in Green Oaks, Illinois, told CNN that the family rescued consistent of her grandmother, May Abergeny. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I hope so. Larry Ambergery and her brother, Gregory Ambergery. They are safe and doing well, she said. Corvetti's brother shared pictures that captured the flooding inside the house as the three waited to be rescued. In one picture, you can see the 98-year-old May sitting on her bed, which is almost submerged. Crovetti said she does not know the name of the man who rescued her family. Polly said he also does not know the man's name. 
Crovetti set up a verified GoFundMe campaign to help supporters of her grandmother and other family members. The flooding, we'll link to that, by the way. The flooding has claimed the lives of at least 26 people as of Sunday morning. The National Weather Service put out a flood watch in effect through at least Monday morning, so this isn't even over yet. There is a level three of four moderate risk of excessive rainfall on Sunday across southeastern Kentucky, according to the Weather Prediction Center. Heavy rains and flooding began last Wednesday, sweeping some homes from their foundations and forcing residents to search, forcing residents to search for higher ground. Governor Andy Bashir said that he expects the death toll to rise as search crews enter areas that are currently inaccessible. It's already in the mid-20s and expected to rise. Pray for those folks if you can give to them. Uh, you know our rules here. Try to give as close to the disaster as possible. Nothing wrong with those national organizations. But the problem is you give them money. Their money goes to their overhead and expenses first. And then whatever's left over goes to whatever the cause is. Try to give as close to the disaster as possible. That'll do it for Hurtel for this Monday. Got an exciting week of programming stacked up for you. A lot of noise in the news cycle. I'm going to try to turn it down, give you the good information we need to discern the times we live in, make good decisions about what's going on in the world as it exists, not as it is online or on TV, the real world, because that's the one we got to all live in together. And we need to be doing a little bit better of it. Wherever you and yours are across the street around the world, thank you for listening to Herd Tell. We hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon on the next Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much lemon.